I'm Dustin Wynn. This is Freddie Williams. This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mildred DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezrelli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. This is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Fertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 70. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... You got Josh. This is Don. And this is John. We are bringing you the news and comic book reviews from the weeks of June 5th through June 18th. We have a total of seven books to cover. We do have a decent chunk of news to cover as on June 6th, the announcements of all the new Batman books coming out in September were released. But we're going to stay away from that discussion because you may have already heard. But if not, we actually have a special on the Batman Universe Specials podcast feed related to the DC relaunch talking about not only DC relaunching all their titles, but also the Batman books and where we see things going into the future. So if you haven't checked that out, definitely head over to the website and check that out. But as I said, we have a ton of news to go over because there was a bunch of people talking about exactly what's going to be happening with the September stuff, but not in so many words. So... We'll go through the news, and then we'll obviously get into our comic book reviews. And as always, we have our bad books for beginners, and we'll go over any bad book delays, and that should be about it. So let's sit back and enjoy what's been going on in the Batman Universe comic world. The very first thing we've got comes on June 8th. There was an interview that posted on Comic Resources with Adam Beechin about what could possibly be happening with the future of Batman Beyond. Now, as of right now, we know that Batman Beyond is not coming out in September, but there is some interesting things that we'll get to about the future of Batman Beyond after the interview. So for this interview, I'll read for Comic Resources and Josh will read for Adam Beechin. It feels as though with this latest Industrial Revolution arc, you've moved from the initial phases of the miniseries and launch arc being so much about expanding that world and instead focusing on the core cast from the show, including Max, Blight, and so on. Was that a phase you've been working to bring back as quickly as possible? You're exactly right. The Hush miniseries was intended to assimilate fans of the old series to the comic book and fans of the regular Batman continuity to the world of Batman Beyond to be a good middle ground where everyone could feel like they knew what was going on. I feel like with the first arc we did of the ongoing series, bringing in the Justice League and all, that helped fans of the regular Batman continuity understand more about what the heroic world was like in the future. Now that that is out of the way and everyone has their bearing, we can start really digging into the world of Gotham and Terry and his supporting cast. We can explore what Bruce is all about, what business and politics are like in the world of Gotham City, where the other heroes are, and what the world is like outside of Gotham. We can dig into all that. And in the course of doing that, one of the things we're going to hit on are parts of the DC Universe. Things as they relate to the world of Batman beyond now. We'll have a chance to show a lot of different things. We have a chance here to broaden the scope of what the animated series provided us. The big news of this story is the return of Blight, who is largely the first supervillain built specifically for Terry's Batman. 
What's the attraction to bringing him back into the fore after he had a diminished role in the later seasons of the show? Well, he was the first Batman Beyond villain. He's the guy who made the whole concept of Batman in the future possible, since he's directly responsible for Terry's father's death. And he received his powers in the pilot episode, and was a major, major player in the series. When you get into who is Batman Beyond's greatest villain, who is his arch enemy, I think he'll start with Blight and go on from there. We wanted to bring in the big guns as early as possible, because fans of the animated series have been clamoring for it, and wanted to see more of the Batman Beyond villains. And if we're going to show them, we wanted to start at the very top. The other big question hanging is that there's major relaunch hitting in September. We haven't heard about the status of Beyond just yet. What can you tell us about the future of the series amongst all of this change? I do know what our next arc is going to be, but I can't yet talk about it. I'm in the process of planning it out, and I even know what the next arc after that will be as well as our next Legends of the Dark Knight issue. We're in a pretty good place about what's ahead of us, and if all goes according to plan, we're pretty well set for the next bit of time. And we're going to keep the team intact as long as we can and keep trying to crank out good stuff. All right, so that's the end of the interview. Now, the interesting thing about that last question is he doesn't actually explain what's happening with Better and Beyond come September. So as of right now, all the September solicitations have been announced, and Batman Beyond is nowhere to be seen. So the real question is, what's going on? Well, Beechin did happen to tweet something on Twitter, and he pulled it very shortly afterwards. But he did say, the plan, as I understand, is to keep all the storylines going. Just start with a new number one. Origin story in the works, but not for number one. You won't believe our twist, or who's drawing it. So that's what he posted on Twitter about Batman Beyond. Now, what's kind of interesting is that there also has been some talk online about how some series are going to be launching in October and November as well with number ones, and that is just because there's 52 series in September doesn't mean that's all there's going to be. And Batman Beyond is expected to be one of those based on the high numbers that it's received since it had its miniseries last year. I was thinking about Batman Beyond earlier. And I was thinking about, I think it was Dustin who said in that issue where Dick Grayson tells everyone that he used to be Nightwing and that he used to be part of Batman Incorporated. And you were saying, oh, I wonder if that's something they let slip and if Dick Grayson goes back to being Nightwing or if it's just the off continuity, which just made me think about that. Yeah, definitely knowing that Batman Incorporated is still going to be around, not exactly knowing how it's going to play out with Dick Grayson being Nightwing, but that could be something quite interesting. could have been a, something that they were foreshadowing without maybe the editor catching on to what was going on. The one thing I will say is that I like that he said he's really going to explore Terry's supporting cast and Terry himself and the villains. I just question what his excuse was for not doing that in the first place. I mean, I'm a broken record by this point in saying that I wish he had done that from the very start. And it's not that he's planning to do that, but I'm just saying, why now? Especially when everything's changing, I just, I kind of question that. But it is good to hear that it's coming, I suppose, better late than never. I hope he explores more of Max and how she feels about being Batman's best friend. <laughs> All right, so also on June 8th, the writer who's going to be writing the new Red Hood series, Red Hood and the Outlaws, Scott Lobdell, talked with Newsarama and had a little bit of different things to say. So this interview is a little bit long, but there is a lot of different things that come out of this, including what we can expect from Jason Todd and his outlaws, per se. So for this interview, I will read for Newsarama, and Don will read for Scott Lobdell. What's the overall tone of this comic? Is it as dark as it sounds with the outlaws title and the presence of Red Hood, or is it more action or adventure oriented? I don't really think of it as dark, but when you once have a dead guy rely on guns, 
a former addict guy on Eros and a one-time prisoner of war woman who is essentially a nuclear reactor with pretty much one power setting. Certainly a lot of violence will ensue. Since he crawled out of that grave, however, Jason hasn't done much mentally to get out of that pine box. He hasn't left that dark place. I'm looking forward to seeing him interact with other people that have nothing to do with his quest for vengeance or trying to kill his way through Gotham City yellow pages of crime. While Roy has had his issues with drug abuse in the past, he's at a place now where, for better or for worse, his off switch is off. He'll tell you what he's thinking with the same aim for the heart that he uses for his arrows. And Corey, she survived intergalactic death camps and now lives on a world trying to help aliens who, as a race, often confuse and confound her. Certainly if the situation was reversed, and I was living on Tamaran, I don't think I'd ever really feel at home. So yeah, there are dark elements to the story, but if Jason and Roy and Corey aren't moving ahead, aren't stalking through the crappy hands they've been dealt, aren't trying to forge a future for themselves, then that is what I would consider a dark book. That's not what's happening here. How are you approaching Jason Todd as a character, particularly if you're trying to reach new readers? I'll say this. We all know Superman was rocketed to Earth as a child and Batman was orphaned by a thug and dedicated his life to fighting crime. But those and most every other superhero in the world have come much farther than the point of their origin. Jason, however, seems to only ever think about or talk about his past and how it informs his presence. I am more interested in who Jason has become than who he is. I think there was only one reference to Batman or Gotham City in issue one and none at all in issue two. Could you imagine if Superman referenced Jor-El and Smallville every issue? Or Batman said, eat Alfred? How can I eat when my parents were murdered in front of my eyes 20 years ago? Old fans picking up Jason will have extra insight into the character, and new fans will feel that they are picking up the first issue of a series about a guy who has made some really poor life choices and is looking at ways to do things better. And the more they come to like the character, they'll be driven to watch Judd's excellent animated DVD or seek out all the great Red Hood stories that have come before. I'll say this. In the old days, you could pick up the first issue of a comic and you felt like you were getting in on the ground floor. Too often today, it feels like if you pick up the issue of Moonbat 1, you're actually picking up the 133rd issue of Moonbat's 30-year publishing history of canceled series and team book appearance and sporadic relaunches over the years. And the first issue feels like the writer has ushered you to your seat during the third reel of the movie. As a fan, I find it really off-putting. So my hope is that with Red Hood and the Outlaws number one, people will feel like they are being brought into the first issue of the new series and be excited to stay around till issue 100. It seems strange to have these characters together as a team. Strange? Really? Yeah, a little. We've seen them each in such different settings recently. It's strange to think they'd be in a team book together now. I think maybe people look at the title and think that it might sound like a team book, like Batman and the Outsiders, but it isn't a team book. It is the story of Jason Todd as the Red Hood and a handful of similarly damaged good people who wind up in each other's orbits. Sometimes you pick your friends, and sometimes they pick you. That seems more natural than strange. All right, so that's the end of that interview. So, Red Hood, I'm really starting to think that this is going to become kind of like an Outsiders-type book. Because, huh. well, it does have outlaws. At least they got the first syllable of the second word right. It's not Batman and the Outsiders, it's Red Hood and the Outlaws. But I get this feeling that that's just what this is. This is their new Outsiders book. And instead of Batman being in it, they're trying to give some other characters a chance to shine a little bit more. And this is Jason Todd's opportunity. Honestly, over the past year and, well, more like two years, Jason Todd has had you know a decent run on a bunch of different stories. Not necessarily good stories, but the fact is he's popular enough for they can keep telling stories and people, for the most part, give the opportunity to Jason Todd. So I think that this is DC's way of saying, okay, we see that you're buying the Jason Todd stuff. We'll give you more Jason Todd on a regular basis. 
I'm so sick of this. Don't call it a reboot, but we're changing the characters' histories and starting out with number ones, but don't call it a reboot. Then this thing, don't call it a team book. It's just three people who happen to be teaming up. Like, the only way that you can say don't call it a team book is if these three people happen to be in the same book, but did nothing together. If they even, like, punch a bad guy while they're all in the same room, they're teaming up. It's a team book. It's Red Hood. It's freaking called Red Hood and the Outlaws. That's like saying Paul McCartney and Wings aren't a band. It's just a bunch of musicians who happen to be, you know, playing instruments within the vicinity of each other. I'm sorry. No, I saw this coming. <laughs> I knew you were going to react like this. That is so ludicrous. <laughs> I actually agree. I don't know why they're so opposed to people reacting the way they do when they give us certain information that leads us to only one conclusion. I actually am looking forward more to this because he's saying that he wants to focus Jason Todd as a person and not reference his past because that's actually one thing that I think Judd Winnick, everyone says Judd Winnick is so great with Jason Todd, but all he has Jason Todd do is thinking, well, I'm the bad Robin, and now I want to make sure people remember it. Like, that's Judd Winnick's trick, and I'm really sick and tired of seeing that, so I'm looking forward to this being different. I will say that Don't Call It a Team thing is ridiculous. And I'm wondering why they keep on saying it's Outlaws because Starfire is there, but, like, Starfire's not an outlaw. She's a superhero. She's, like, yeah, she's a little more violent, I think, but she's nowhere near as rough around the edges as Roy and Jason are, so I wish there was a little more justification for her being on the team. Yeah. But I'm looking forward to this, even though it's rife with some ludicrous moments. I'm really looking forward to seeing some character development to Jason Todd and seeing him for more than, like it said in the interview, just the character goes, oh, this happened to me and that's why I'm like this every issue. But I don't think it deserves a whole book just to do that. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that one. Now, like I said, this may become the new Outsiders and it may not last, but you know, we'll give it a shot. Obviously, we'll review it whether or not it ends up being good or not, because we obviously review plenty of bad books all the time. That's the end of that story. But one thing that I want to start doing is, because of all the hype around the relaunch, obviously, a lot of different news agencies are doing interviews with these creators. So instead of going exactly in order with all of the interviews that were done, I want to try to link some of these interviews together so that way we're not spending so much time going back to a discussion we already had. So with that being said, on June 16th, there's an interview that posted on Comic Book Resources with Scott Lobdell. And for this interview, I'll read for Comic Book Resources, and Joe will read for Scott Lobdell. So we've got Jason running around with Roy and Corey. Why put these three characters together? This is going to sound like an odd answer but I don't really see them as being put together. As I'm writing them, they feel like the most natural characters in the world. I feel like I'm peeking in the window of their character living room and sometime character bedroom and just taking copious notes and running back to the keyboard to send those observations to the artist. When you read it, and you will, you'll see what I'm saying. They just belong together. Now, do I make choices as a writer? Sure. Was I a little taken aback when DC said they wanted two street-level guys teamed up with a walking nuclear reactor from another planet? Hell yeah. But when you see them all together, and you see the way they interact, and the way they rub up against each other, or the way they care, and in some cases don't, about each other, it just feels so organic that I can't wait to start on the fourth issue. Since Merchant is Red Hood, Jason has been a villain. Is this a chance for you to develop Jason Todd beyond his role as the evil ex-Robin? I think of the evil ex-Robin as the first mile of a hundred-mile marathon. You had it rough, Jason. Nobody likes to be murdered. Got it. But to think, 
<laughs> but I think it is going to inform his every footstep of the race, every slip of water along the way. I don't see it. The good news is, for anyone who wants to see that side of Jason and that side alone, there are some very excellent trade paperbacks and an awesome DC animated movie written by the foremost authority on Jason Todd, Judd Winnick. Judd did an excellent job reintroducing the character into the DC universe. I'm honoured that such a complex baton has been handed off to me, and I'm hoping to make Judd proud. But yes, like all great characters, Jason is going to grow. His branches reaching to the heavens, even as his roots as ex-Robin are still in the ground. All right, so that's the end of that interview. So going back to the, you know, the fact that he definitely is looking to make the character grow out of the I'm so evil role. And I'm looking forward to that. Obviously, the fact that he's holding guns on the cover means he'll still be somewhat of a vigilante. So either way, it just goes back to what Don said with the last interview. It's good to see that this character is actually growing and it's not going to be... Because that's one of the things. The whole point of this relaunch is to give some of these characters an opportunity for better stories. And I don't think the relaunch is necessary to have Jason Todd be able to have better stories. But they could have done this a long time ago with Jason Todd and made him a little bit more interesting. I'm of the opinion that besides Under the Red Hood, there has been no story to justify Jason Todd remaining alive. So... I will say that while I am looking forward to his title, this better convince me that bringing him back to life was a good idea because it's just been pandering and meandering since then. And if it's not, I hope he gets canceled and hope he dies again. All right. So that is everything related to Red Hood and the outlaws we've got. Next up, we have an interview with Scott Snyder. This interview was done with Newsrama, and he talks about what we can expect from not only his run on Batman, but also what we can expect in the Batman series. Based on the interview, it seems as if Scott Snyder is really going to be the head writer when it comes to the Bat books. And he, in my opinion, based on what he's been doing in Detective Comics, deserves that role. So let's get into the interview. I will read for Newsarama and Josh will read for Scott Snyder. How did you end up working on Batman, basically switching places with Tony Daniel, who's now working on Detective? Before the fall initiative solidified months ago, I went to the editor with an idea for a story and thought I knew it in Detective. Then when we talked about Bruce coming back in the fall, we just thought, since this is an epic story and has a really large scope, I should try it in Batman. So I talked to the other writers, and we were all cool with it. In the Batman universe, these were stories we wanted to tell even before the initiative got hyped. With a character like Batman, it's probably even less necessary to explain things to new readers, isn't it? I mean, everybody knows Batman. You probably don't have to introduce him like you would have to explain other characters. Yeah, we do want it to be a point, because it's a new number one, that anyone who's never read Batman can jump on and will have some jumping-on-point information, the basics of the character. But one thing we were really concerned with, me and Greg Capullo, was that it wasn't expositional. It wasn't stuff that just came off as, oh, and in case you haven't read Batman before, here's some long diatribe about his parents and so on. So for us, the introduction of Batman and who he is was something that was very easy to organically work into the fabric from the beginning of our story, because it's very much about Bruce and his relationship to Gotham. It's about what Bruce thinks Batman's role in Gotham is, and has some very, very dark and big surprises that are going to rock his sense of what Batman is to the city, and what it's been historically. We've been told that characters like Catwoman and Batwing and Nightwing are back, as well as some other Batman characters. Does Bruce interact with these other characters in this title? Yes, and I understand that there's a lot of confusion and excitement about what the shape of Gotham is going to be in terms of cast. I know there are a lot of wild rumors out there because we're trying not to spoil things that are coming in story, but one thing I can definitely say is that the stuff we've loved about Batman over the years is still here. 
We're not taking away things that people have liked from the past so they haven't existed or don't matter. That isn't the mission at all here. If there are elements of the Batman world and Batman history you love, I can tell you with confidence that these things are still there and did still happen, and they are part of the mythology of Batman as we're using it here. So in terms of the cast of Gotham, DC was very excited about the way certain things were going in the Batman world and certain elements, like the sporting cast. So this may not be a place where there are changes to upset what fans have been liking. I love what we've been doing in the Batman universe, and I think fans have responded well to it. We put a lot of thought into the changes you'll see in Batman's world in terms of how to make those transitions and shifts work within story. And I can assure you as a fan of Batman myself, no one was interested in just doing things that are surprising for the sake of doing things that are surprising. We're very respectful of history and continuity, especially for Batman, who has some of the best moments in comic book history. But getting back to the overall approach to your run on Batman, you were approaching this as a solo title for Bruce Wayne. Yes, overall it's a subtle title. In Batman number one, we'll have establishing moments where you'll get to see the roles played by Damien, Tim, and Dick. They are part of the first issue, but I do want the book to be more of a solo book. Batman and Robin is going to be more about Bruce and Damien, and you're going to have a Nightwing book, obviously. There are going to be places for the team aspect. Even though other characters all appear in Batman 1 to establish the status quo, this is a Bruce Wayne story. In Detective, I want to bring back that sense of Batman as a detective, solving street-level mysteries that escalate. In Batman, I really want the story to be about Bruce being confronted with the dark force and dark secrets that will shake him up personally and are about him as Batman and his city and his relationship to it, and to the Bat family as well. So it's going to be more of a solo book. All right, so that's the end of that interview. So essentially what we get from that interview is Scott Snyder saying to us, don't worry, things that have happened in the past of the Batman universe have happened and will not change. What he says is everything you love is not going anywhere. What happened to Oracle? What happened to Stephanie Brown? (laughs) Oracle already died. Didn't you read Death of Oracle? Uh... I, I, I love the irony of the guy who, again, he's written some good stories, but the guy who, like, puts stuff like, oh, Dick and Babs went to prom together, like, in books, is like saying, don't worry, we, we respect continuity. And I have another question, like he says, all the characters that you love are back, like Catwoman, Nightwing, and Batwing. Where did Catwoman go when Batwing's a new character? I'm not trying to be annoying, I'm like, like seriously, that's, that's... That wasn't him, that was Newsarama. Well, yeah, that's, that was, that was Newsarama, in fairness. Like, I don't understand why they would ask that kind of question. Who's Robert? Don't you remember 20 questions two years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I actually forgot about that. Well, here's, here's something I'm interested in. He says, we'll, we'll see the roles played by Damien, Dick, and Tim. And up to this point, we were all assuming that Tim is going to be mainly in the Teen Titans book. So is, I mean, and, and he says that Bruce Wayne will be the solo character in this book, which is fair. But that actually really, really makes me interested in reading this book just to see exactly how Tim becomes where he will be in the future. I think with that bit, though, he's saying Bruce and Damien will be in Batman and Robin, and then there's Tim, as in Tim's in the Teen Titans, because he's talking about team books at that point. But I'm looking forward to seeing Scott Snyder write Bruce Wayne Batman. I think it could be interesting. I hope he does it as well as he writes Dick Grayson, because they are quite different. I agree. They are definitely quite different, but I think one element that uh, Snyder's been able to nail pretty well is the detective aspect of Batman. And in some senses, don't get me wrong, Snyder's been doing a great job, but really it's the art that makes Dick Grayson really work. And obviously that has to do with the story that's presented to the artist. But the art is really what makes Dick Grayson Batman in Detective Comics currently. Because the whole mystery that's happening in Detective Comics is something that you would normally in my opinion, see Bruce doing. Yes, it has to do with something with Dick Grayson, which sort of involves Dick Grayson, and Dick Grayson is the one solving it. 
But in my opinion, this is something that we don't normally see Nightwing Dick Grayson doing in the past. Yeah, I can see what you mean there. Now, I was going to say with the new artist, Greg Capullo, his stuff's a lot grittier. That might work better for Bruce. All right, so the next interview we've got is actually kind of a interview-slash-response piece with Gail Simone. Now, in the news of Batgirl being Barbara Gordon with the DC relaunch kind of hit the net, there's a number of people that were upset. One of these people is known as the Nerdy Bird, and she posted a editorial on Newsrama, and in turn, Gail Simone wanted to do an interview with her to kind of clear the air about some of the rumors. Essentially, what happened was Jill Pantosi asked questions to Gail Simone to kind of clear up some of the rumors. If you're interested in what Gail Simone had to say, head over to the website, look for the headline, DC Relaunch Babs as Batgirl. There's not really a lot of news that comes out of this interview, so it's not really worth going over, but essentially Gail Simone says that she is putting her heart into writing Barbara Gordon as Batgirl, and that's what matters. Alright, so then the next interview we'll actually cover comes from June 10th. Fabian Asaiza did an interview with Comic Book Resources about landing the very last issue of Batman with issue number 713. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Resources and down the read for Fabian Asaiza. Alright, so the solicits for Batman say Dick is at an identity crossroads. So what does that mean? Probably that Dick is a little confused about the solicitation copy and is causing him agitation. That copy was very early in the process, so it's not totally accurate to how the story turned out. So what is your story for Batman number 713 about? It's about a boy who loses his parents to a violent crime and grows up to be the Dark Knight for a dark city. Now, we've got Red Robin, Bruce Wayne, Batman, and Robin all on the issue cover. Since the story covers many aspects and evolutions of the Bat family, that means that all those characters need to be involved in some way. Did Tony give you an outline for this issue, or were you able to come up with your own tale to end Batman before September's relaunch? No, Mike Martz just asked me to write a self-contained story that thematically encapsulates the 70-year history of the character. Sure, Mike, no problem. Now, DC has announced that in September they will be relaunching all their titles. Does your issue of Batman wrap up plot points and ongoing arcs from the larger Batman run? <laughs> no, jeez, that would be a bit too much to ask in one issue. I think the story serves to very nicely summarize the evolution of the Batman character and the Bat family, but that will be for readers to decide. So essentially, Fabian Saiza tells us nothing about what we're going to be seeing in Batman 713, and it will not necessarily play into wrapping up any arcs or setting up any arcs. True, but I will say that I am interested in reading it just because seeing Bruce, Tim, Dick, and Damien on a cover and knowing that it's about the evolution of Batman, that sounds cool to me. I like reading those kind of stories, so we were told very little, but I'm still looking forward to reading it. The solicitations are wrong. Shocking. All right, the next set of interviews we have comes on June 11th and June 13th. Both interviews with Judd Winnick about his new series, Batwing. Really, the only news that comes out of either one of these interviews is that Batwing will be based in Africa. He will have his own set of villains, and at some point he will cross paths with other members of the Bat family. If you want to take a look at those interviews over the site, look for Winnick Takes Flight with Batwing and Winnick launches Batwing. Both of those interviews are on the website. <laughs> the fact that we're not reading that interview just shows how much interest we have in the title. All right, so then the next set of interviews is also with Judd Winnick, and 
This one is on Catwoman. There was two different interviews, one with Comic Book Resources, one with Newsrama. Both interviews stated almost the exact same thing. So the interviews on the site are edited so that there's no redundancies with the two questions and answers that were given. So you can check those out. But again, not a lot of news that came out of that. Just, hey, stay tuned because Catwoman's going to be awesome, which is seeming to be the theme among a lot of these interviews that are being done. <laughs> Come here and buy it. All right. So then the next interview we have comes on June 13th. Tony Daniels spoke with Comic Resources about his new position, this time on Detective Comics. And there is some news worthy of what we can expect in Detective Comics once Tony Daniels takes over. So for this interview, I will read for Comic Resources and Joe will read for Tony Daniels. What did you learn from your previous writing gigs on Battle for the Column Batman? and collaborating with Grant Morrison that prepares you for this next major assignment. Do you need to go bigger with your ideas, tighten the scope, take more risks, take less risks? I think I retain traits and methods that I find organic to my way of thinking. I pick up things here and there from everywhere. From Grant, I learned what a master craftsman he is. He plans a long way out. I certainly admire his ability to pull the strings and to lift the curtains to unveil only what he wants to. He knows how to work the audience. But to answer your question, what did I learn that I'll carry over to the detective? I think there's a natural growth that comes with doing. I've learned something from each book and each art I've done so far. When you can look back and see where your missteps were, that means you just grew a little bit. I approach each story differently, but certainly the ideas will be bigger here, much bigger. I think writing Bruce has a lot to do with that. I kept the Dick Grayson stories as compact as possible. Sort of like renting an apartment. You don't start doing construction and changing things because you don't own it. Bruce, though, well, that's a different story. He is Batman. It's okay to go out on a limb because Batman can handle the consequences. Like you said, you're writing Bruce Wayne now instead of Dick, Tim, or even Damien. He's obviously the most iconic of the Batmans, but what separates Bruce Wayne's voice from the other superheroes who sought the cow? Bruce is Batman. The original. The icon. There's a certain weight he holds that no one can come close to. I can tell you he certainly isn't light-hearted when he's wearing the cowl. He won't be cracking jokes. He'll be too busy planning your downfall and then executing it. Damn, that sounds good. Oh my god! <laughs> We've also been teased that Bruce Wayne is on the trail of a dangerous serial killer known as the Gotham Ripper. What can you tell us about this new villain and what other details can you share about your first arc? I can't reveal a whole lot. But this is no ordinary serial killer. He proves no one is safe in Gotham. We will learn his true name in September, but the police and the news media have dubbed him the Gotham Ripper because of the gruesome similarities to Jack the Ripper. Alright, so again, Tony Daniel doesn't really reveal a whole lot. One thing I have to say is he may be better at hiding the details of the story than actually writing the story. This guy. <laughs> he didn't answer really much any of the questions besides... The Ripper thing. I know that they can't reveal too much, and it's hard to really say much about it, but this interview is, like, completely bland, and the fact that I don't really answer questions for a majority of these interviews is really giving my last nerve. All this does is reestablish my fear that Batman's going to go back to the really dark Batman who's kind of annoying. Alright, so with that, let's move into another interview with another creator on another book. Al Higgins talked with Newsrama about writing... Nightwing, and for this interview, I will read for Newsrama, and Josh will read for Kyle Higgins. As you launch a new number one, how are you keeping new readers in mind? 
we're really hitting the ground running, and we're starting with Dick Grayson as Nightwing. We're stating that he's been the best he's ever been, simply because he was just Batman, but it's really a new start for the character. As you take over Nightwing, Dick Grayson is a little different than he's ever been before, isn't he? Simply because he's been Batman. That's a big part of what we're doing in the series. I don't think he can do a Nightwing book at this point without dealing with the fact that he was just Batman. I'm not sure I could say much more than that, except that one of the reasons he's Nightwing now is because of him just being Batman. You'll have to keep reading to find that out. But in terms of his skills and confidence level, Nightwing has an even greater experience behind him now. So in our comic, he's become the best version of Nightwing that he's ever been. It's what has made him better. He's working out of Gotham in this title, right? Yeah, Gotham City was always the one place he'd always avoid it, but now he's successful there. So he's staying in Gotham because the city has changed around him, and he feels like the city needs him. Since he's in Gotham, does he bump into other people in the Bat Universe? Yeah, the thing about Dick Grayson, and it's something we're playing a lot with in Gates of Gotham, is that is in his nature. He's a very social person. That's one of the best things that separates him from Bruce. He works well with people. He works well with the other members of the Bat family. So yeah, there will be people popping up in the comic. And Dick's direction in Gotham City is tied to him continuing his mission because he feels the city needs him and he's been avoiding the place as he has over the last few years, which Scott has explored wonderfully in Detective Comics. So it's not just him isolated in the city. Will we see familiar villains from his rogues gallery, or will you try to add to that? There will be some of both, with the direction he's going as well as the fact that the city has changed around him and he's still changing. There are a lot of new threats. That's not to say we're getting rid of or jettisoning the old villains, but because this is a new number one, we're making this really accessible. This isn't jumping on point, and there will be new characters and villains. Okay, so essentially, again, another interview, another writer, another comic title, and... Not a lot told about what's going on in the book. But, hey, we do know that it's an excellent jumping on point, as everyone has stated numerous times. For real. I would love to see someone reading this, like, just thinking Nightwing issue 1 was a new jumping on point. Some new reader hasn't read anything from DC before, maybe just watch the animated series. Because, what? Who's who's Batman? But, But Bruce is Batman. What's going on? Because they're saying over and over and over again, so he has to deal with it. I don't like Dick operating in Gotham. It's different when he's Batman, because he's, like, operating in Gotham to, like, substitute for Bruce. But the thing about Nightwing is he's always, quote-unquote, been his own man. And I think, it, you know, that was the big deal. Like, oh, he struck out from Batman. He has his own identity now. Oh, he patrols the streets, but he doesn't do it with Batman. And, like, in the few years before Batman R.I.P., they kind of got away from that, where it used to be, like, a special thing where Dick would visit the Batcave, but now he was literally showing up to business meetings there on a regular basis. And just him operating in Gotham, I don't know. It's, you know, I like the idea of him having his own city, his own life, not just being another Gothamite. As Joe asks in the chat window, wasn't Bloodhaven destroyed? Yeah, it was destroyed, but I mean, he can go to another city. Was he He in New York at the end of his title? Yep. Yeah, he was in New York. He was like curator of a museum there. It was really weird. (laughs) It's it's like like he was a bartender at a police bar at one point. Then he was a male model, I kid you not, at one point. Then he's curator of a museum. That's a weird resume. Oh, and he owns a traveling circus, but it burned down. He's the adopted son of a billionaire. Well, I guess when you're a son of a billionaire, you can have a lot of jobs and nobody really questions it. Alright, so the last bit of news we have is probably, I don't know that I would say the best news or most important news, but it does give a little bit of answers, more so than any of the other interviews we've done. This interview was conducted by Comic Resources and Newsarama. We kind of mashed these two interviews together 
because both interviews were posted on the same day, only a matter of hours in between. And they were with Bob Harris, the editor-in-chief of DC Comics, and Eddie Berganza, the senior executive editor. So we're going to go over a couple different topics. I'll read for whoever the news agency was, because it's kind of irrelevant at this point who it was. And Don will read for Eddie Berganza, and Joe will read for Bob Harris. So first off, first topic we're going to cover is on important events from the character's history occurring, as well as the renumbering legacy series such as Batman and Detective Comics. So the question is, the other question I had on this front was about the number ones. These happen often in comics these days. And the big shocker here was around the legacy titles, Action, Superman, Detective, and Batman. What discussions did you have surrounding those titles? Was there a little trepidation about relaunching books that have been here for decades? There was definitely a discussion. As I said earlier, everyone here is a fan. Everyone is aware of the iconic nature of our characters and their history, so the decision was made very thoughtfully and it's part and parcel of how important we think September and moving forward the rest of the DCU is. Right. Just because we're starting with a new number one doesn't mean we're getting rid of the history attached. A lot of those big, important storylines are remaining intact. What happened to A Death in the Family stays true, and so does Blackest Night, Brightest Day, Killing Joke. Identity crisis. Again, this is a well-thought-out process before we went forward. We've been speaking with creators from different offices and families, and their approach seems to vary. The Batman writers seem to be going out of their way to stress how things aren't going to be changing that much, but conversely, the Superman titles seem to be going through a radical change. Is there an overarching editorial edit, or are there rules what individual editors and writers want them to be? I think there's an overarching discussion. This was a well-thought-out approach to all our characters across the line. But we also looked at events that happened in the past that we wanted to incorporate into our current storylines, and we're going to be part and parcel into our ongoing stories. So we really did take everything very seriously, and looked at big events like Blackest Night and Brightest Day, and wanted to make sure those stayed a part of our stories. Right, the ones that really impacted people like Death and Family Killing Joke. The ones that even people outside regular comic readers know. People know something happened to Barbara Gordon that the Joker shot her. That counts! So we looked at all these characters and really said what we're going to weave in and what we're going to keep and what we're going to move forward on. So to clarify, the storylines you've mentioned, like The Killing Joke and A Death in the Family, are definitely part of history going forward? Yes, and in fact, they're even important starting points for some of the storylines we have. But that doesn't mean other stories didn't happen, right? Correct. Alright, so that's the first one. Thoughts on that are clearly going to be using some of the storylines as a basis to start off their story. So this is just a hypothetical thought, but Killing Joke could have ended in, instead of her getting shot and paralyzed, she gets shot and she's not paralyzed. Now that would wipe out the entire idea of Oracle, so I don't see that happening, but that's just a thought based on what they said. I don't see that, because I keep on saying moving forward, they count. If the stories count, and Barbara Gordon wasn't paralyzed, then the story doesn't count, because it's a different story. And I think that these guys, as much as the editors like to double-talk, I think that they recognize the folly in doing that. I mean, obviously, Barbara Gordon is not paralyzed anymore, but I don't think that... When they say that, you know, these story these storylines are starting off points, I don't think they're going to go in there and tinker with them. I think they're just going to have them fix in continuity, and then alter them in the present day, I think. Alright, so then the next topic is on whether these events 
are definite or do they have an expiration date? Just to put all the rumors to rest, are the stories we're seeing in September taking place on New Earth? Yeah! Yeah. It's not Earth Prime or any other Earth. It's not Earth 1 or anything. Yeah. This is the whole of our DC characters. These are the stories of Superman, Batman, and all our characters. This is the story of the DC Comics cast of characters. And yet there are a lot of changes. As any informed comic book fan knows, changes to iconic characters rarely sticks. We all remember Superman Blue and other costumes that eventually got back to the iconic looks, and we've seen characters come back from the dead. Should fans even regard these changes as anything but a phase, a temporary status quo that will give way to a more familiar version? I think this time, honestly, we've taken a lot of care making sure we look at what works for each and every character. We love these characters, so we've taken an extreme amount of care to look at what we want to do. I think that what we've got coming is really exciting. I think people are going to be really happy with what they see in September, and I think people are going to be excited. I'm looking forward beyond that, to just hear people as they discover this amazing stuff. I think there's a little more reality to the approach we're doing on the costumes, so I think that that will enable them to exist for a long time. Alright, so at least DC is sticking to this is something that's definitely going to happen and not going to revert back to later on down the line. I thought it was funny how Bob Harris said, yeah, these are all our characters from DC, this is the whole cast of characters, and yet we already know that there are going to be more titles released down the line. Yeah. Alright, so then the next topic is, on the changes between the announcements, the solicitations, what we will actually see in September. Uh, this stems from the fact that the announcements were made, there was a paragraph for each issue that was announced, and then somehow the solicitations came out and things changed creators actually changed, and the stories actually changed as well. So first off, we have, between now and September, there's going to be a lot of speculation about what's going on with the books and what we as readers expect to get out of so many new titles. I know some people have been making hay out of the fact that between the announcement and solicitation, there was a mysterious woman on the cover of Justice League International, and that's been taken off. What's the challenge in playing story points to the vest while still promoting the comics to retailers and fans? Are there still some things being ironed out story-wise that may create some kind of dissonance? I'd say it's a little bit of all of the above that we're dealing with right now. There are certain things we're refining. Yeah. Moving forward, the good thing about having three months of titles in the works is that we can go, okay, maybe we want to tweak this a little. That's one of the things we are looking at across the line. It's all part of the process of making these books as strong as they can be for September. All right, and then the last bit is, and the possibility of other series, including Batman Beyond, coming out later than September. So through October, November, December, and into next year, can we expect some more titles to continue to build out the new line? Yes, mark that as an emphatic yes. Open square bracket, insert laughter, close bracket. Well, that leads to one question we've had on our site about the fate of Batman Beyond, which Adam Beechin has said there are more plans for moving forward. Should that be on the slate soon? We will have a Batman Beyond series coming out later. That character and that series has been a major success for us, and it will be on track for the future. That's part of our bigger plans moving forward. All right, so Batman Beyond will be coming out. I'm assuming it will probably start back up in November. Now, that was one of the series that was already Dane Digital, so it doesn't make a lot of sense for them to hold off on it, unless, of course, there's some other reason that they're holding off on it. 
I think they're just concentrating on all the big books that people care about, and they'll get to the books that people don't care about when they can. All right, so that is all of our comic news. Let's get right into our reviews, and the very first review we've got is Batman Arkham City number two. Who sent you? You girls, strange. I know everything about you, your darkest secret, your ultimate weakness. I know you are Bruce Wayne. Batman Arkham City, issue two, written by Paul Dini, illustrated by Carlos Danda. This issue begins with Vicky Vale and Jack Ryder reporting on the mayor approving and constructing the upcoming Arkham City section of Gotham. Bruce Wayne arrives, and later that night, as Batman, he relays to Alfred that he intends to investigate exactly how the mayor plans to go about the Arkham City construction. We learn the mayor's origins and how he sees himself to have inherited the spirit of Amadeus Arkham through photos of Batman variously put across the wall. Before leaving the compound, the nearby computer flashes on, and Hugo Strange confronts Batman, dragging his plans to him before activating the security system inside of Mayor Sharp's office. The Cape Crusader makes short work of the system and escapes the office before the guards were fully alerted. Batman deduces that the whole setup was a trap to study his moves and techniques. And if this were the animated series, he would squint his eyes menacingly. Anyway, at Arkham, the Joker is being moved to Arkham City. Or is he? The guards figure that this is the perfect moment to finish him off once and for all, but the clown press of crime is saved by Harley Quinn and the two escape. Batman is alerted and attempts to stop the Joker's escape, but the Joker manages to evade him, and as he and Harley reach Arkham City, they take shelter inside a Roman Sionis building. To be continued. Alright, so Batman Arkham City number two. Well, we're starting to see some things and some information about the video game before, obviously, we find out things from the actual video game. It was shown in one of the trailers for the game that the Sionis Industries building was being used in the game. A lot of people assume, well, that means Black Mass is going to be in the game. On a completely separate note, we know Black Mass is going to be in the game, but the Sionis Industries building is actually the location of the Joker's hideout. I find that kind of interesting because you would think that would be Black Mask's hideout if he is, in fact, in the game as a boss. But I digress on that regard. I do think it's interesting how the guards did take Joker down to try to finish him off once and for all. We don't see that very often. You would think with all of the horrible things that the Joker has done, you'd be seeing that a little bit more often. I'm not real sure why we don't. I can't imagine Arkham Asylum being that focused on the safety of the inmates where things like this don't happen more often. I thought this was a decent issue. It's very Paul Dini. We do skip around a little bit. I like the inclusion of Jack Ryder since he was in the first game reporting about the events that were happening in Arkham Asylum. Vicky Vale will be interesting to see if she actually makes it into the game or if this is just part of the comic book. Other than that, this was an average comic, kind of just slowly bridging the gap between Arkham Asylum and Arkham City. So, three out of five batteries. I like this because it's a video game tie-in, and usually video game licensed tie-ins are very, very, very subpar in this, actually. Now, granted, I'm not sure about the strategy of releasing the tie-in before the game, because I don't know how this expands upon the game's universe or storyline or whatever. We just have the fact to go by that whatever Arkham City is going to be, it's a sequel to Arkham Asylum, so... I guess this is supposed to be bridging the gap between them, because I remember the first issue had no stuff from Arkham Asylum. But either way, it expands upon the characters who I, I hope will be followed up on in the game. I don't know, because the game's not coming out yet. 
and makes you more interested in that story and that world. And I guess, you know, in the 52 Earths, there's got to be like a video game Earth 49, the Arkham Asylum universe. And so I like what they're doing with it. I like getting into the mayor's mindset. I'm going to give it four out of five batterings. Yeah, I enjoyed this too. This is a pretty, as simple as the story is generally, because it's just, it's just a video game tie-in, sort of meant to attract the video game players more so than the comic fans. I thought Paul Dini did a good job of not really dumbing it down. This could easily play as an issue of Detective Comics or Batman, and I thought that I appreciated that it was like that. I like the fact that I like how Dini writes Batman, Bruce Wayne, and we get a lot into his thought process. I liked how he realized that the trap wasn't really to kill him, but to test his techniques, and he wasn't playing around. He kind of blew up the place. And I actually kind of liked Harley Quinn saving the Joker at the end. I thought that was pretty cool seeing what she can do. Even though I, I may come off as a hypocrite because I didn't like it in Gotham City Sirens. But this is a very straightforward issue. I like Batman's reaction to the Joker escaping. He's like, oh, good. And I like the art. So I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. I was shocked how much I liked this because it is just a video game time, but I really, really enjoyed it. And it's Paul Dini working at his best. And it seemed to me just like a darker extension of the animated series. So I really enjoyed the whole issue. I thought it was pretty interesting and seeing how it's time the two games and working up these plot threads and stuff like that. And to see those in Arkham City is going to be cool now that I've read this. I think the pacing is really great as well. And I know I should have seen the Harley Quinn thing coming, but I didn't. Because I was just so in the story that I just didn't see it coming. So I'm actually going to give this 5 out of 5 batterings because I really, really enjoyed it when I was reading it. And I'm looking forward to the next issue. It was a lot of fun. Alright, so that is going to give Batman Arkham City number 2, 4 out of 5 batterings. Let's move on to our next book, Superman Batman number 85. Superman versus Batman? What a scoop! Superman Batman issue 85, the first issue of The Secret Arc, written by Joshua Bialkov, with art by Adriana Mello. The issue starts in Metropolis, with Jimmy Olsen taking pictures of a young woman when a body is washed up on shore. At the Daily Planet, we find out that the body floated downriver from Gotham, and he was a reporter for the Gotham Gazette who worked out who Batman is. Batman is suspected for the crime, but the editor of the Daily Planet asks Clark Kent to go and recover the story. Clark Kent gets to Gotham, and Batman meets him in an alleyway. Clark offers to help Batman, but he refuses, saying, This is my city, and my problem, while grappling away. Batman goes to investigate the home of the reporter and finds solid evidence connecting him to Bruce Wayne, when suddenly the police show up. Batman blocks the door and throws a white phosphorus grenade which burns all of the paper instantly, leaving the room ablaze for when the police officers burst through the door to see Batman fleeing the carnage. It's later revealed, however, that Batman returns shortly with a flame retardant to extinguish the fire. As this is going on, Clark Kent is meeting with Martin Maine, the editor-in-chief of the Gotham Gazette. Maine finds out from Metropolis that Clark will also be working on the story and goes to show Clark the files from the dead reporter. But they appear to be missing. It is at this point that the fire caused by Batman is reported and Clark leaves instantly as Superman to help. Superman finds Batman after he escapes from the police. He produces a box that he found amongst the reporter's research and gives it to Batman. Batman opens it to show Superman what the lead reporter used to deducing Batman's identity. The box is filled with lots of parts of former Batman gadgets. It turns out that Batman forgot to file off the serial number of one cog, and from that, the reporter worked out who he is. Superman once again offers to help Batman, but he refuses to be continued. Alright, Superman Batman 85. You know, this series as a total 
has gone up and down and up and down and up and down. And based on this first issue, I'm quite glad that it's going to at least be ending with a decent story arc, at least based off this first issue. Now, we've seen this in the past where the first issue of the story arc is good and then the follow-up issues are really bad. But for the most part, I'm interested in what's going on. It's still, for some odd reason, is a Superman story with Batman as the supporting character, as we've seen so many times in the past. But the interesting thing is, it's a Superman story that is telling also a Batman story as well. It's hard to decipher exactly what that means, other than we're clearly following Clark Kent around Gotham City as he's trying to figure out exactly what to do about Batman. We also obviously seen scenes of Batman trying to make sure that his secret is kept secret at the same time. But for the most part, again, this is a Superman story that just involves Batman. Of all the things that could possibly link Batman to Bruce Wayne, this would probably be one of the least things you would have ever expected. Honestly, when Batman walked into the apartment and there was pictures all over the place of Batman and Bruce Wayne and all these different things, I immediately had to wonder to myself, okay, how did this guy know this? And I had no idea, and when he popped that box open, I didn't even know what to expect. Even seeing the box full of all these little mechanical pieces, still had no idea. So props to the Globe for writing in a, a decent first issue for the story art. The art, it's very common art that we would normally see in Superman Batman. It's an artist's interpretation of the iconic interpretations of Superman Batman. The dialogue, I think, could use a little bit of work just because we don't need to have Batman being extremely cross all the time. I get the seriousness of what's going on, but at the same point, it just seems like we don't need a grumpy Batman 24-7. I am interested to see how this is going to take place over three issues, just because it seems like an easy fix. Batman has the piece now. Now all that needs to happen is Clark Kent needs to bury the story. So we'll see how this works. For now, based off the first issue, I'm interested in what's to come. Four out of five Batman. This is not one of my favorite Superman-Batman stories. This is just a case where if everyone would have just, like, laid everything out on the table at the beginning instead of just fighting with each other, things would have been better. And, like, just the conflict, it feels so forced. Superman, like, well, you know I have to finish the story, Batman. No, help him! Finish the story and I'll, like, hide the fact that it was you or something. Or And, okay... There's a serial number to a Wayne thing on one of Batman's items. So the only way that Batman could have gotten it is by being Bruce Wayne. He couldn't have gotten it, you know, by stealing it from Bruce Wayne or something else. I mean, I guess that's what made the reporter suspected in the first place, and maybe he connected the rest of the dots from there. But I don't think that that's the big smoking gun that they're making it out to be. And again, just Batman's like, I'm not going to let you help me, Superman. And Superman's like, oh yeah, well, I'm going to help with this story, which isn't exactly what he says, but pretty much he's like, you know, I have to finish filing this story. You know, no, you don't, jerk. Two out of five batterings. Yeah, I have mixed feelings on this issue. I like that it is a lot more of a half and half. You know, Clark Kent has an assignment, and his assignment leads him to Gotham City. So I think just because it begins with Superman doesn't necessarily mean it's a strictly a Superman story. And, you know, Batman's neck is on the line. And there were nice things that they were doing, like having Clark use his powers kind of discreetly and being a very go-to kind of reporter. I really like seeing the side of Clark Kent because lately we've got pre-crisis kind of like goofy Clark Kent. And that's actually not really one of my favorite interpretations of the character. So I like the fact that this is more towards like the modernized, more competent character. At the same time, it's really, really cliche at this point to have Batman and Superman go not so much at each other's throats, but just like kind of be really irritable and disagree with each other all the time. 
I know everyone loves The Dark Knight, and everyone wants to hug it and kiss it so much, because that was the first one that started off the idea that they weren't best buddies. But it's been almost 25 years since that story. Can we please move on? I mean, I don't want Superman and Batman to be holding hands each issue, but at the same time, you can do it. And I know this is supposed to take place early in their relationship. So, I, okay, I understand that. But at the same time, you're sort of limiting yourself to what kind of story you can tell, because this has been done so many times before. Just them disagreeing. And them just, you know, like, like Bruce saying, it's like, go home, Smallville. Like, this is not your problem. It's just, well, you need help, Bruce. And you're too suffering to see. Like, we see this like 10 times a year. And the, the, I, the fact that the story is even being told now, I don't know if writers understand or not how utterly cliched the story is. And that was really killing it for me. I did like some things. I actually did like how Batman was trapped by the cops and destroyed the evidence. And Clark Kent had to sort of like say, well, Batman's not a criminal because he put out that fire. I like that sort of conflict. But the basic story, it's not a badly written story, but from the get-go, it's a very annoying kind of plot. And I'm not really in a hurry to see the resolution of it because if this is a flashback story, everything has to end well. There's, there's very, very little suspense. So I'm going to give this two out of five batteries. It wasn't bad. It's just that it's just so, it's so dang cliched. I'd say I like the issue overall. It is set, I believe, earlier on in both of their careers. So, like Don said, it does take any sort of suspense out of it. But I still thought it was interesting. And I do think the story, though, is a bit loose in the sort of something about it doesn't quite add up sometimes. Like, for instance, it said the body was in the water for a week, which means that Batman waited at least a week to go and check out what he had as evidence against him. And then I don't know why the police turned up at that point. But it's just little things like that and some of the dialogue that's stopping me from giving this a higher mark because I'm enjoying the plot so far. And I also thought Superman disappearing mid-sentence was used a bit too much. But maybe that's because I see it as more of a Batman trait. But I'm going to give this three and a half out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Superman Batman number 85 three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue. Batman number 711. Hold it, hold it, hold it! Get out of my face, clown! Which one? We start off the issue with Two-Face basically crawling out of the grave of Gilded Dent. He scratched his way out, and he is really trying to cope with what has happened. He's clearly not dead, despite the fact being shot in the chest in the last issue. Somebody whacks him over the head with a shovel, and then we cut to Batman, Dick Grayson, who is trying to figure out exactly what's going on with Two-Face. And he finds out that Catgirl is also investigating him for some odd reason, and kind of pointing him in the direction of things that she's already found. So one of the first things is a location of where Two-Face was hiding out himself, and then we also see where Two-Face shot the guy in the head, who was actually dummy-rigged to make it seem like he was going to shoot Two-Face. Batman then finds inside the phone a device that emits knockout gas and wants to do a little bit more research on this. We then cut to Mario Falcone, who's talking with Gilda Dent, and we find out that Gilda Dent is actually being held against her will by Mario Falcone. Two-Face wakes up to find that Riddler is partaking in this ruse along with Enigma, Riddler explains that he's working alongside Gil Dent, and they're actually doing this to protect Two-Face from Mario Falcone, but at the same point, the reason why is because Gil Dent wants Harvey to basically free her and take out Mario Falcone. Back at the Batcave, Dick Grayson, Damian, Wayne are finding out that the knockout gas device was used by one of the Riddler, so Batman goes out to find the Riddler. We then see Catgirl and Enigma fighting in what appears to be a 
chop shop, and the chop shop is also the place where weapons are being brought in for Two-Face's army that they're basically raising up. After Batman takes out a bunch of Riddler henchmen in classic 60s attire, we then see an explosion and Enigma gets knocked out by Batman. He tells her, you need to tell me what's going on. Catgirl has been shot, and at this point, who knows what's going to happen with Catgirl. She was only shot in the hand. Two-Face is rallying the troops for his army, and the next thing he says is, Gilda, I'm coming, honey, and that's where we end the issue. Alright, so Batman 7-Eleven. Obviously, in Batman number 710, Two-Face wasn't going to die. That was the game. I liked how it was explained. For once, Tony Daniel using the Riddler actually seems to make sense. Somewhat. I say that because I don't know why in the world Gilda Dent would have went to the Riddler, especially since the Riddler hasn't been a helping type recently of the villains. The last time we really saw the Riddler in a major role in the Bat Books was during the beginning issues of Gotham City Sirens, and even that really didn't go very well. And Tony Daniel has this crush on using the Riddler. You know what? That's fine as long as he does it right. I don't really like the way that the Riddler's face is drawn. It reminds me of something that I would never associate with the Riddler. I do like, however, the way Two-Face is drawn, as it looks very good to me in comparison to some of the other people's faces, despite the fact that Two-Face's face is half burnt off. Again, with Catgirl, let's just eliminate this character altogether, and this issue would probably be a lot better. Also, while we're at it, eliminating characters, get rid of Enigma. What, did, what, what, what role did those two characters play in this book, other than having a small fight scene between the two of them and then Batman having to score both of them? Really, we could have got better dialogue between Batman and Damien or Riddler and Two-Face instead of having these other characters involved. So, with that, I don't think it was a horrible issue, so I'm going to give it three and a half out of five. Tony Daniel, the problem that I've had with him that I've been saying is I like the stuff going on in his comics with, you know, the big cast of Gotham City, but as I've said, there's always just too much going on. We got the Riddler and Two-Face in one corner, Dick and Damien in one corner, and then, you know, the the crime family's in another corner, the Batgirl, who isn't dead yet, awesome, in another corner. There's just way too many plot threads to keep up with and this whole thing with Two-Face you know and his recently returning wife that's something that I want to see more of you know not get interrupted by Enigma you know a horrible retread of the 70s Batman family's Julia Dent <laughs> yeah they're addressing the skills and stuff because ever since the No Man's Land novelization it's been really really murky what her current continuity status is is she dead or is she not dead and it's been hard to get a good read on that in the book so it's interesting and I like how it's tying into some of the old stuff and I want to see the payoff but it's taken a little while to get there because of all the characters three out of five batterings I actually kind of enjoyed this one significantly more than the last issue this actually felt like a really good and solid issue of Batman if you were to pick a Batman issue in this day and age this felt right at home which I guess is an odd compliment but it was very well paced there was a lot of detective work we saw the appropriate cast of characters in the cell Batman and Robin but he didn't need Robin exactly they're getting into this Falcone and Gilda Dead mystery, but I'm with Josh. We kind of spent too much time playing around with Enigma and Catgirl and the mob rather than addressing exactly what's up with Gilda Dent because we don't have much time anymore, obviously. But I like the way this issue was just panned out. I like how you had Two-Face rising from the grave, then Batman investigating crime scene, going back to the Batcave, then showing up at the right place at the right time, beating up some thugs. I don't know. It felt very, very classic to me, and the execution was pretty good at well round. Hopefully this is the end of Catgirl. I mean, she wasn't mortally injured, but 
this might shake out of this whole costume crime fighting life. And I do wonder exactly what's up with the Riddler, because I'm not sure if it's ever been explicitly explained why he's completely changed his mindset. I don't really like his look either. I mean, I kind of like how he always has this really sarcastic smile on his face. I do kind of like that, but I think that it looks a little too, I don't know, maybe it's a little too soon or something. I would give this three out of five better ass. I really didn't know what was going on in the beginning, because it seemed like Two-Face dug himself out of this grave. But, like, why weren't his hands tied after... I mean, because his hands were tied and stuff when Gilda shot him. And I know it was, like, a bulletproof jacket and rigged to look like he was bleeding and stuff. But why would they just untie his hands before burying him and not check that he was dead? And then, if I woke up and found myself, like, surrounded by this earth, or you wouldn't even know what that was. So it'd just be, like, this cold, moist compression. And then I wouldn't instantly think I'd be buried alive. All I know is I'd freak out. But Two-Face apparently just knows exactly what's going on, and he just, like, claws his way out, even as time to just, like, question Gilda's existence. And, like, how did he not suffocate under there? And then where did he find the strength as well to dig himself out? He just apparently regained consciousness and climbed out. And it's not like the first thing he does when he gets out is gulp down air, because there wouldn't be any air underground. He just shout, expelling all oxygen from his lungs. He does exactly the opposite of what you would do. And then he was sitting next to a grave, which was an open coffin, sitting in an open grave. But it can't have been Gilda's, because Two-Face just climbed out of her grave. So it looked like it was a coffin next to him. So I just really didn't get it. Oh, and also, he was remarkably clean as well for someone who just climbed out of underground. Well, it's kind of and then I don't like the way the artist draws Batman, as he's got this really big, beefy chest. It's like an upside-down pyramid, and then these really scrawny arms just hanging down limply either side. And they look like they're attached way too high. But then that's the thing I noticed about Batman, is he always looks cooler the less you see of him, like the cover, for example. And then there was that bit with Enigma and Catgirl fighting. And then for some reason, she takes off her mask, so he can get that. And then, yeah, I mean, I don't really know how I felt about this. It's kind of interesting, but very convoluted. So I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. All right, so that is going to give Batman number 711 three out of five batterings. Let's move on to our next issue, which is Batgirl number 22. guys remember last fall when batman the return came out and batman gave batgirl that assignment to go overseas for an undercover mission yeah we're finally getting that now so you know about eight months later but it's cool i remember everyone panicking when that first happened because like oh my god is stephanie brown's title gonna change well anyway in her bedroom she gets a call from bruce wayne on one of the new batman ink communicators and we cut to her in london and you know she's thinking that bruce wayne is probably doing this for revenge for her slapping him. And Bruce Wayne, the road home Batgirl, 
Stephanie and her civilian undercover identity, which is Constance Aberthing, is greeted by Squire and her civilian identity, and Squire is anything but subtle. Squire wants to show her sights of Mariel Blundin, and even references some things that happen in the Night and Squire miniseries, because Stephanie's afraid that something weird might happen, because she's heard stories about what if a giant foot smushes us or something. And then I smile because there's a girl version of the Beatles walking down Abbey Road, there's a bank robbery by this 1960s Adam Westian-type bat villain called Orphan, who has a machine that actually stops time for everyone but him and his henchmen, so they can go around doing what they want. There was an episode of DuckTales like this. I don't... Did any of you guys see? <laughs> no, not in a while. That was the first thing I thought of. I mean, they, they used it to, like, pants baseball players and stuff. This guy's using it for murder. Squire and Batgirl get to the machine in time, and because of some interference, they're able to travel, and they realize that Orphan's going to try and kill Knight. Luckily, the girls intervene and get him frozen in time. The girls realize that they won't be able to take the credit for the crimes that were avoided that day. So Stephanie's a little disappointed about that because Bruce is going to wonder why she was late for her assignment. She gets back to her hotel room where Batman's waiting for her and wants to know why she's late. And then that's to be continued in Batman Incorporated number 9. So Batgirl number 22, this is an interesting story for a couple of reasons. One, we're in the middle of the Reaper story, and this is now the second time Brian Q. Miller has gotten off of what's going on in his normal story to tell a one-off issue to have either something to do with another storyline going on in the Batman universe, or just a one-off story because I guess they wanted to break up the issues for a trade paperback. Who knows? But I find, it, and I'm sure that's more of an editorial thing, more so than Brian Q. Miller, but it does hurt the story that he's been trying to tell. And now, knowing that this happened in this issue, we only have two more issues left, so that Reaper story is going to come to a screeching halt very quickly. But about this issue, clearly they were trying to go in the same kind of sense of what happened with Knight and Squire. We had the same editor on this as we did on Knight and Squire, so that kind of plays into it. Recent editor, Janelle Esslin, she tweeted that she's been tweeting a lot about Night and Squire and how enjoyable the series it was to edit. And, of course, she's also on this one. So she did this. Brian Q. Miller writes the story. This is supposed to play into Batman Incorporated number nine. The problem with this is that Batman Incorporated number nine, at this point, isn't coming out until August. <laughs> number seven isn't even coming out until the end of this month. So, <laughs> that was real brilliant on their part to do that. Not to mention, at this point, who knows exactly how Batman Incorporated is going to wrap up this first set of issues that are coming out now, where we don't have things like, for instance, Batgirl being in England, paying for a good eight months. That set aside, this was not nearly as enjoyable as the normal issues of Batgirl, and it's not because of the fact that she was in England, I enjoyed the play on the English themes and sayings that they have. I enjoyed that because I enjoyed that in Night Square, but it didn't seem to blend with the story as well as it did, obviously, in Night Square. So, I don't know what it is about this specific story, but it just seemed like, hey, I got an idea, let's throw an American in England, have a pair up with an English hero, and see what happens. And the whole, oh, we gotta battle this guy who's trying to freeze time, just seemed out of place and forced. And, to tell you the truth, the whole reason she went to England was because Batman told her to go because he had a mission for her. But for some reason, this entire issue is based on her getting there, 
her getting accustomed to English things, her going on a complete side mission with Squire to save everybody from being frozen in time, only for it to end with Batman saying, so where have you been? So, in other words, we could have not had this, and in one page in Batman Incorporated, we could have Batgirl get a page from Batman, and then, wham, there she is, she's in London. This issue seemed completely forced, as if it was supposed to be this tie-in to make Batman Incorporated fit with what's going on in Batgirl, since Batgirl, for the most part, besides the firewall upgrades and all that stuff, she's kind of been out of the loop as far as what's been going on. So, I hate to say this, but two out of five batteries. And I agree with Dustin in the fact that, you know, we're building up this Reaper storyline, and we get the cliffhanger last issue. I like those odds. Now, time to go to England for a jolly old time with Squire. I do like the Batgirl book and how they can do stories like this. When you have too many stories like this, it gets very, very formulaic. Like, we have her special teaming up and bonding time with Supergirl, and then Damien and Clary on the Witch Boy, and it's becoming too much of Batgirl teaming up with different members of the Batman family each issue, and I like exploring her relationships with all these people, but it's being done almost every issue now, and I, I want to get back to, you know, her maybe teaming up with people like Oracle and Wendy the people who she's supposed to be working with. And hey, since we know this title's ending in September, maybe we should wrap up what the heck is the big mission Nick Gage and the woman he loved and why he was in a cult. Otherwise, fine, and it gets an extra battering for the Beatles, so I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. This is probably the best in the lot. I actually, I did like this issue. I like Night Squire. I like Squire. I think Barrel's a lot of fun. Though I will say, <laughs> the more and more I read of these characters, the more I realize that they are horrible horrible caricatures of real people in England, but <laughs> especially with we have a, a Brit in our own group. But you say that she teams up with people like every issue. It, it's, it's like every, I think it's every story arc. I think they, they kind of give the story arcs a breather and have her team up with some people. And I think it makes sense that she would team up with Squire just because with the whole Batman Incorporated thing, I can see Batman wanting her to get to know other members of the group better. And Stephanie doesn't really. She only knows Robin and the people at home, or Tim Drake, you know, and the, and the people in Gotham. So I could buy her randomly being in England for an issue and teaming up and, you know, having to have a really breezy adventure. I totally bought that. I don't have too much to say else, but I like the art. I thought Prey Perez did a really, really dynamic job. I actually think he's my favorite artist on this book. And I thought the beginning and ending was pretty funny. And I kind of like Batman showing up behind her. Like, this is sort of like the Batman I like. I don't like it when he's like overtly antagonistic, but I sort of like it when he's like, like a, a mother or a teacher saying, you know, care to explain where you were, young lady? I, I thought that was kind of funny, so I enjoyed this. I'm going to get this four out of five veterans. Overall, I think the premise of the issue is quite fun, but the Britishness was a bit over-the-top, played out. Whereas in Nights and Squire, it was done kind of lovingly and a bit tongue-in-cheek, because it was written by a Brit, obviously. This was based on stereotypes, but kind of over-the-top. For instance, this is actual dialogue from Beryl. Somewhat not Constance have a thing, yet somewhat also very much not presumably for the purposes of our conversation one, which, you know, even I didn't understand. So, <laughs> I was like, what? And I had to try and break it down and like, I, I mean, there were some fairly fun British references in there. I mean, it made me think of Josh when we got to the Beatles bit and then there was Monty Python in there and stuff like that. So. It's kind of fun. I mean, I liked how Cornell's Night and Squire played into it and how the UK just has their very lax attitude to superheroes when Beryl was just like, oh yeah, why don't you just tell the whole world? It's like, alright, I'm joking. It doesn't, it really doesn't matter. Which I think is quite fun. And it was a very elaborate and ridiculous plot, which again fits with Night and Squire, but 
I'm only going to give this three out of five back trains because it interrupted the Reed storyline. And while I'm sure Brian Q. Miller kind of had to write this issue to fit it in with Grant Morrison, I think he did an okay job, but it's unfortunate that it interrupted this storyline. All right, so that is going to give Batgirl number 22 three and a half out of five batarangs. Moving to our next issue, Flashpoint, Dead Man, and the Flying Graysons number one. I assure you, Batman, there are fates far worse than death. So we're going to stand here and twiddle? Or are we going to get down to business? Nice entrance. That was in the circus. Flashpoint, Dead Man, and the Flying Graysons issue one, written by J.T. Krull, with art by Mikkel Janin. The issue opens up in, and I apologize if you're from Austria, um, Kufstein, during an acrobatics performance by Deadman and the Flying Graysons at Haley Circus. It turns out that because of the Amazon-Atlantean War, the circus is stuck in Europe, but they travel around the country offering entertainment to combat the depression, as well as collecting enough money to survive. After the performance, the circus packs up to move to their next destination, Dead Man, who turns out to still be just human Boston brand, is a very selfish and arrogant man who only wants to play in the big cities, but the circus avoids these as they're too easily targeted. However, Dick Grayson asks Dr. Fate, one of the sideshow attractions, which cities are safe. Whilst he doesn't answer, he appears to have a vision of some of the major things, particularly relating to Batman and Robin, that haven't happened because of the change to the timeline. We jump to, again, sorry Poland, I'm probably butchering this, but Kelly's, where the circus is being set up for another performance. Boston attempts to wake Dr. Fate, who he believes is sleeping, but as soon as he touches Dr. Fate's helmet, there's a vision of himself standing over Dick's dead body. Boston is confused by this and storms off in anger. We jump back to Austria, where Kufstein is being destroyed by what I guess are Amazons, but I'm not really sure. And the leader of them attacks the mayor and demands to know where the helm of Nabu is as she holds up a picture of Dr. Fate. Back in Poland, Dick and Dead Man are in the changing rooms, where Boston is trying to convince Dick that he should go solo, but Dick enjoys working with his fans too much, and the issue ends as the performance is just about to start, but from outside, the possible Amazons are swooping down on the circus tent. To be continued. Alright, so Flashpoint, Dead Man, and the Flying Graysons, number one. Clearly, if you're not following what's going on in Flashpoint, you might not have any idea what's going on, but clearly, in the Flashpoint universe, Dick Grayson's parents are still alive, and you know, he's dressed in the Nightwing costume, he's not a superhero, he's just an acrobat in Haley's Circus. In addition to that, Boston Brand is clearly not dead, but he does have a costume that makes him look like dead men. But wait, that's actually how he was before he actually was murdered. So I found this kind of interesting in the fact that it expanded the universe of Flashpoint. It's hard to say exactly what is happening in this issue that's actually going to play into the events of Flashpoint. I can see that the Doctor Fate helmet is the main reason of why the circus is being attacked. But at the same point, I don't know how that has anything to do with Deadman and the Flying Graysons. Now, if in the next issue, Deadman gets killed and actually becomes Deadman, or the Flying Graysons become the Flying Grayson because the parents died, then I guess that would make sense. But again, that would be very cliche in the fact that, well, that's already happened in the real universe. So why would that happen here? So it's got me interested, but it's, it was a story that just seemed to me as if it was setting up a number of things. One of the story was to set up what's going on with Dick Grayson, 
what's going on with Boston Brand, and besides that, point out that Dr. Fate's part of the circus, and that's why the circus is being attacked. So, for me, it wasn't as enjoyable as it could have been, since the fact that we're only going to have three issues, it's following the very basic story format of setup, action sequence, conclusion, which is what we're going to see, and that's pretty much what I think it's hanging out to be. So, for this issue, I'm going to give it two and a half out of five batteries. This was somewhat interesting. I mean, an alternate view on the Flying Graysons, who very often with characters like the Waynes or even Jor-El and Laura or any parents, you know, in the DCU or comics in general, all we know about them is that they died and that they were oh so perfect, you know, when they were alive, and that's why, you know, their kids or family members are avenging them. But I wish that we would have seen more of the Flying Graysons than who they were, even in this alternate timeline. That would have been interesting. I hope we get more of the Flying Graysons and life at Haley Circus and the repercussions in the next issue. So far, all I can say about this is it had potential, and hopefully it will continue to live up to it. I'm going to give it three out of five batteries. I didn't enjoy this as much as the Batman 9 of Vengeance one-shot, and it wasn't a bad issue. I think it's just because the fact that this is one of those alternate reality versions that kind of pokes at the regular reality. I don't know, maybe maybe there wasn't much to work with, in my opinion. I liked seeing Dick work with his parents, but maybe I would have been more interested if he was actually an adolescent as opposed to an adult, although it is a different dynamic than what you expect. But I don't know, I mean, I, I thought this issue was kind of there. I thought the art was interesting, but I don't really have much to say. But this issue wasn't bad. It just wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. I'm going to give it a straight in the middle. Two and a half out of five better ranks. I thought it was a decent issue. There wasn't much action in it. But what I thought made up for it was the idea of the depression which has fallen on Europe. And I think that brings a real realistic human element to it. Instead of focusing purely on the heroes and the changes to them, it really brings in how people, just normal people, feel about this whole thing. And I thought that was like, both really interesting and kind of refreshing from that, oh, no, this hero is not around because of this, and this is why this hero is different. I liked that. The art was very Fraser Irving-esque. Not my ideal style, but I thought it kind of worked here, and overall I liked it. It was a bit cleaner. And like I said, I'm not sure if the Warriors were Amazons, because, I mean, that's what I first thought of, but... It looked like they had kind of full body armor and wings as well, which doesn't fit with what we've seen of them so far. But, I don't know, maybe it's like Hawkman or something. (laughs) But I'm definitely interested to see why Dr. Fate is important and seeing the progression of Dick Grayson in the title. So I'm definitely hooked for the next issue, so I'm going to give this four out of five batteries. Alright, so that's going to give Flashpoint, Dead Man, and the Flying Graysons three out of five batteries. Let's move into our next book, Red Robin number 24. Red Robin, issue 24, written by Fabian, illustrated by Marcus Till. We begin where we left off last issue with Tim Drake, also known as Red Robin, battling the large group of scarabs. After taking out the majority of the team with an electromagnetic pulse, he goes after the original scarab who flees via a hidden room between the hieroglyphic laced walls. Tim then gets the information from Lonnie Macon that leads him to the whereabouts of Victor Makalek, who was recuperating in the hospital after his assassination attempt in the last issue. Evading the guards, Tim learns that the Russian assassin, Promise, was the one who shot Makalek. Tim hightails it in search of her and runs into a huge Russian guard who attacks him. He begins to lose the fight, but Promise arrives and shoots down the assailant with rubber bullets, asking why she used the assassin tournament to kill Makalek. Tim asks to what end before getting knocked out by Promise, who displays a strange, shadowy power. Tim awakes in Paris, chained by the arms, and is greeted by Promise and her sister, whose powers resemble the Teen Titan Raven. She's very shadowy, she has like glowy eyes, and she actually wears the same, not the same, but like a very similar looking robe. The woman says that she will indeed kill Tim, 
revealing that she knows his identity before she unmasks him. And although he will die, she says his spirit will continue through his child to be continued. Red Robin number 24. Where do I begin? <laughs> Let's just say that over the past year, we've heard a lot of talk about Tim losing his virginity. And I don't want to get into too much detail about this because this is a family-friendly podcast. But I did not expect Tim to be losing his virginity through a woman who could possibly force him to lose his virginity so that he can have a child. If it feels like I'm looking for words, yes, that's that's right. I, I'm really looking for words to describe this. I definitely didn't see this happening, especially after probably the last eight issues of Tim being with the woman of the issue and Tim being in very odd situations that involve a half-naked woman. This was not the situation that you would have thought <laughs> happened. So I guess praise goes to Fabian and the size of for giving us something we would have never expected. At the same point, I obviously don't see this actually playing out, but if that's the case, then all this hype about Tim's V-card is completely useless because there's only a couple issues left, and I'm sure at some point this is going to wrap up, and I'm sure it's not going to be in the last issue of Red Robin, which has Tim going against Captain Boomerang. So, you got one issue after this to wrap up this entire virginity arc, as I am now calling it. Marcus Toe's art, very, very consistent as what he normally has. Don't know what else to say about this comic. Kind of stuck on that last page of not knowing exactly what direction this comic's going and what we can expect for Tim Drake. Clearly a lot of the stuff that Fabian decides that was hyping for a long time will not actually play out because I'm very doubtful that the Assassin's Tournament is going to wrap in the next issue and then go to Captain Boomerang in the following issue, but at the same point he goes back to Gotham City to take out a couple villains here and there. His entire international organization is not happening. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that I'm kind of disappointed on this going on, but it doesn't have a lot to do with this specific issue other than that last page. So, A for effort, F for execution, two out of five batteries. I'm... Uh... I'm driving. I get a text from the co-host of the show, Donovan, telling me about the last page. First thing I do is, because this is a text conversation, this is phone conversation, I call him up. First thing that comes out of my mouth, we're going to have two Robins that have been sexually abused in canon. I, 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 I can't believe Now, granted, the act hasn't actually happened yet, but... <laughs> Good lord, like, even if he gets out, like, the fact the fact that they're, like, dangling that as a cliffhanger, the cliffhanger is, oh no, how's he gonna get out of this room where he might drown, or, oh no, he's surrounded by a bunch of ninjas that want to kill him, or, oh no, will he get to Tan Fox before he died? It's, no, the cliffhanger is, is he going to have his V-card taken from him? Uh, are you kidding me? <laughs> now, first of all, just say that Lucius Fox is alive. I know that you got to play it fast and loose, but we all know he's alive, you know? Stop it with the, like, undercover dialogue, Tim. Like, Lucius Fox is off-limits now. That's why she can't see his body. Yes, we know he's alive. Red Robin's been a little out there. I'm still a fan of Davian writing Tim Drake, but this series has been a little out there lately, and to go back to its former glory before everything goes to heck during the reboot. In the meantime... Can we please get just a cliffhanger that's better than this? That's not a cliffhanger. That's an that's an episode of Undressed. Two out of five. Okay, I didn't have a single problem with the last page, and I, I'm kind of surprised that. I mean, it's not like it's actually already happened. I mean, 
True, it's a very bad predicament that he's in. And if it were to go down the same way Nightwing kind of went down, then it would be very bad. But I think Fabian's a really good enough writer to realize that the fans, being how fans can be, were kind of clamoring in the last six months once he dropped hints that Tim was going to lose his virginity, that they're going to be talking about it. And it's never really been brought up in the story until now. I really think he's sort of having fun with the idea. And with the series ending very soon, I actually thought this was a pretty funny and clever way to end it. I mean, it's not like he's on the floor with a knife in his gut and she's like undressing right in front of him or anything like that. It's sort of, I mean, he could probably get out of this. DC would never publish something like that. Oh, sure they wouldn't. Uh, Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think this is so, I think it's funny. I'm not really offended by the end of it just because I think that it's a full page splash. It's supposed to be kind of like, you know, what the heck. And the next issue, Captain, what a way to go. I mean, I don't think this is going to happen. And just the look on his face, I found it really, really funny. The rest of the issue was kind of mediocre, to be honest. I really love the art, as I always do. But nothing really, really cool happened. But I like the fact that Promise is being determined to be more than what she was initially presented as. I just enjoyed the issue for the end, just because I really want to see what happens next. I mean, this is one thing they did. I want to see what happens in the next issue. And it's completely aside from the fact that Cassandra Kane's on the cover. I thought that, above all, is, I think, pretty ingenious storytelling. I'm sorry. I'm giving this four out of five batterings. Yeah, I was reading this issue. I thought fairly interesting, or at least elements of it were. Like, I really liked how Red Robin dealt with the scouts with the wireless virus. I thought that was pretty cool. And, yeah, other than that, I was sort of flicking through. Got to the end of, what? I mean, everything kind of, I, I started to lose the, the thread at the end, and I didn't know who was who, and what exactly was happening, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. If this actually happens, it is less of him losing his V-card than having it stolen from him and ripped up in front of him. And What a way to go! Although what I am looking forward to is the one-use taser that every Bat family member has in their costume when someone tries to break into it. Exactly. I mean, Tim's costume doesn't exactly have a zip, so it's going to be quite interesting. It might be the whole issue to him struggling or she's trying to rip it off him. I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. I mean, it, it was definitely a cliffhanger, so. All right, and over on the website, Swap Star gave the issue three and a half out of five batterings. That is going to give Red Robin number 24 three out of five batterings. Let's move into our final issue, which is Batman Robin number 24, written by Judd Winnick and art by Greg Tuccini. Okay, kiddo, I gotta go. It's been fun, though, right? Well, maybe a smidge more fun for me than you. I'm just guessing, since you're being awful quiet. Anyway, be a good boy, finish your homework, and be in bed by nine. And hey, please tell the big man I said hello. <laughs> Uh <sighs> 
kind of pick up the issue with another flashback of Batman Bruce Wayne working with Jason Todd Robin. And it's basically talking about how in situations, it's not that you shouldn't panic. It's that you should always know what should happen next. And essentially, staying cool is supposed to be a given. In this situation, Jason Todd, back to present time, is being rescued by the Menagerie, as they're called, which is a dinosaur, a lion, a lioness, and another animal that I can't even tell what it is. But essentially what's happening is they're breaking them out because somebody has paid them to basically extract him from his custody. As it turns out, they actually have rubber bullets, and the blades that they have aren't real. And Jason Todd tries to escape, and just as he is overpowered by these four individuals, Batman and Robin show up. And this is Batman, Dick Grayson, and Robin, Damian Wayne show up to make quick use of all of these animal-like characters. Jason at one point takes one of them hostage and says, I'm going to kill him unless you let me go. He gets a phone call from somebody who, in my opinion, I'm not aware of this person. I don't know who this person is. If I'm supposed to know, then definitely the artist didn't do a good job of interpreting the character. But this person on the other line is a female, and she has Scarlet as a hostage. So Batman and Robin decide they have to team up with Jason Todd, because it's the only way that they're going to be able to get Scarlet back is by working together. Damien's not a big fan of this, but hey, neither is Dick Grayson. Jason Todd goes to a secret bunker, which Batman and Robin knew nothing about, puts on a new costume, kind of like a mix between Batman Under the Red Hood, the movie, and Under the Hood, the comic series that we've seen in the past. So he's got kind of a new costume, and it's to be continued. Batman and Robin number 24. To me, this issue felt like a filling issue. Not a whole lot happened in this issue. Two big things happened. We find out Scarlet's being held hostage, which brings back Scarlet because we haven't seen her since Batman and Robin when Grant Morrison was writing the very second story arc of the series. Aside from that, the only other thing is that we now know that the next issue is going to have Batman, Robin, and Jason Todd teaming up with each other. But other than that, nothing really happened in this issue. We had an attempted escape by Jason Todd from his people who were helping him escape in the first place, only to have Batman and Robin show up and then everything switch up. It really just felt like a really big fill-in issue that they didn't know exactly what to do. This starting to seem, depending on what's going to happen in the next and final issue of the story arc, that they could have made this specific issue a total of two pages and done a two-issue story arc instead of three. The art by Greg Tuccini I find a little bit better than Gillian March's art, Gillian March is better served, in my opinion, for the females most of the time. And in my opinion, he's not very good at drawing the male characters because there's nothing to accent, and that's what his art's about. Greg Tocchini, at least, gives a little bit of clarity slash normalty to the characters. And I gotta say, the last page with the new Red Hood costume, even though it was a mishmash of different costumes we've seen in the past, was pretty cool, so... I'm going to give Batman Robin number 24, three and a half out of five bedrooms. I take some issue with the art because Jason Todd doesn't even look like Jason Todd anymore. If it wasn't for some dialogue and internal narration, I would have no idea who that was. You know, we should be able to recognize these characters without something saying, he looks like Roy Harper, it's the heck knows. And then the whole thing, uh, okay, uh, so they're bringing back some of the characters to kind of tie in, so maybe we should get back to some of those plot lines, but 
I didn't really care about Scarlet enough to see her again. The Red Hood doing a mismatch of all of his old costumes. This is like the third or fourth incarnation of his costume, and he's getting to be like a spoof of like the Punisher at this point, where like a bunch of bad 90s cliches, you know, combine the costume. He has a skull on his chest. For real. <laughs> Okay, I mean, can we get back to something else? Or can we draw Jason Todd to look like Jason Todd? Two out of five veterans. I want my money back. I paid like three ninety four for this thing with tax, and I basically got three pages worth of darn and like 18 pages that weren't. I mean, I said this earlier in the podcast or maybe in the last show, but I'm so sick and tired of Jed Winnick writing Jason Todd because he has like one story for the guy. These guys are good, but I'm better. You know why? Because I've been bad. I've been bad when I was dropping it. I'm bad now. Look at my five o'clock shadow. I mean, the art wasn't good, or, or I shouldn't say that. I didn't care for the art because you could barely tell the people's facial expressions. And Jason Todd, even during the fight scene, especially where the guy kind of looks like Tigro or somebody from the Thundercats, like it doesn't even look like him throughout the rest of the issue. He has like grayish brown hair or whatever. And this was supposed to be place at night, but it looks like it's taking place 6 a.m. in the morning. And it was way too inconsistent for me. <laughs> Full page splash, Scar was kidnapped. Who cares? And this chick with the Allegro's window hair. I, I don't know. The covers show Batman and Robin like clawing at Jason Todd throughout the whole three issues. And we get none of that here. We get them fighting dinosaurs and the Thundercats. And it's not really written all that convincingly. I mean, this could have been told, this entire issue could have been told in three or four pages max. But no, it's padded out to nearly 30 pages. And at the very end, he's like, huh, I got a new costume. I think it'll work. Let's go. I'm not excited for the next issue, and I don't really want to read the next issue because whatever it is, we won't be getting a fight between Batman Robin and the former Robin, Jason Todd. So I want my money back, and I don't want to pay for the next issue. One out of five better ones. Yeah, first of all, it was the wrong artist because Rick Pagini was only solicited to do issue 25, but at least they got it right on the cover. During that whole fight and thing, how did rubber bullets shoot through chains, which were shackling Jason Todd's wrists together? For some reason... And this, I kind of liked the art. It took a bit of getting used to, but overall, and I mean, I definitely liked it more than Gillen March's because I'm not a fan of his style. But it was on page 13 that Jason Todd magically shaved and his hair bleached blonde. But it was just for that one page. I mean, if you check it out, it's really weird. But I like the reveal of Scarlet because it really ties it into Batman and Robin, the title. And it gives the illusion of it having some weight to it, but it kind of doesn't. And... I mean, this was just a massive fight, but there were elements of it I liked, but nothing really to go on. So I'm going to give this two out of five Batranks. All right, so that is going to give Batman and Robin number 24 two out of five Batarangs. So that's all of our comic reviews. Let's throw over to Nick with Batbooks for Beginners. Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick and today I'm covering a story called The Misfits. This uh, covers issues 7 through to 9 of the Shadow of the Bat series. came out in 1992. It was written by Alan Grant who also wrote the last story I reviewed, The Last Arkham, which I enjoyed immensely. And the art is by Tim Sale, who you may be aware of through the Long Halloween uh, or Dark Victory. Um, I really enjoyed both those books. Uh, the art in particular was very interesting, so I'm eager to see what he can do here in a regular comic uh, storybook arc. So, the question is, who are the Misfits? What is that, some kind of joke on your name? 
Chancer. A costumed criminal from Texas arrives in Gotham City. He steals money from an armoured truck and comes into conflict with Batman. Just when Batman is getting the upper hand, Chancer jumps off a building to escape, but Batman cannot find Chancer's body on the ground. As it turns out, before Chancer could hit the ground, he was saved by the Catman. Catman offers him a job. He says that he and two other criminals have something big planned. Calendar Man uh, arrives at Catman's hideout along with Chancer, and also Killer Moth turns up. Catman offers Chancer an opportunity to join the group of so-called misfits and promises Chancer he can have a share of $10 million. Killer Moth explains the plan to Chancer, a triple kidnapping that involves Commissioner Gordon, Mayor Kroll, and millionaire Bruce Wayne. The Misfits set their plan in motion as Alfred is driving Bruce to the Wayne Foundation building. An explosion goes off. Killer Moth and Chancer attack from a nearby building. Bruce Wayne tries to fight off the villains, but Killer Moth shoots him in the chest with a tranquilizer dart, and they escape with Bruce Wayne. Meanwhile, at a charity gala, Calendar Man and Catman activate a device that sends low-frequency sonic waves flying into all present and they manage to escape with James Gordon and the mayor. The Misfits then place a call to the police department and demand a ransom of $10 million, or their victims die at 9 o'clock. We learn of a um, another character called Nimrod, who is searching for the villain Chancer. He sees that the bat signal has been lit and follows it. Um, he arrives and hoping to meet Batman, but Robin arrives instead. Nimrod explains that Chancer framed him for a crime. Robin refuses to listen, but Nimrod then tells him that he knows where the misfits are holding the hostages, and Robin will have to let him free if he wants to find out. Nimrod believes that the misfits are being held at the docks because the kidnappers claim that the victims die at nine, and the tide comes in at nine. And meanwhile, at the hideout, the misfits take Bruce Gordon and Mayor Kroll and they put them in a crate hung over uh, some water. And Killer Moth, whilst the others aren't looking, decides to lower the crate and tries to drown the hostages. Robin arrives at the docks and tries to infiltrate and find out where Bruce is with the hostages, whilst uh, the misfits deal with the ransom that's being brought by Sarah Essen Gordon, uh, Commissioner Gordon's wife. The Misfits get the money, they run away, they begin to divide it amongst themselves, and then Nimrod, who's been following them, arrives, uh, gets involved, tries to stop them, um, but gets shot by Killer Moth in the leg, who attempts to kill him. Robin saves Bruce from the underwater crate, along with the other hostages, and Bruce uh, quickly changes into Batman and arrives to help Nimrod in the fight. He battles the rest of the Misfits and is, is victorious. So, in review, um, I thought it was great to see some of the B-list villains in action. As uh, Killer Moth says in this story, they always lose. They're fed up of losing. So you kind of start to root for them a little bit. They're fun to read. You begin to like them. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek, because we know these villains are a little bit silly. And it's amusing that they always end up on the losing side. And we know that they're a little bit useless, but they're fun to read anyway. I really enjoyed the dynamic out of that whole misfit group. The Killer Moth I thought was pretty brutal, and he's so desperate to win just one crime that he is willing to do anything, I think, to, to do it. And that's you see that when he tries to drown the hostages. I thought Calendar Man had a radically different appearance 
from what we've seen in the long Halloween, for instance, which was done by the same artist. Um, I think I prefer his more basic look um, as just the bald man in Arkham Asylum as opposed to this capes uh, masked calendar man. Didn't work. I thought he was just a bit cliche, to be honest. Uh, the art style was really great, really impressive, and it reminded me, of course, of Tim Sale's Long Halloween. He's got that style. He doesn't he doesn't divert from it very much, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I think it works perfectly, and I, I still really like it. Uh, Catman was amusing. Um, I think it's interesting he always has this parallel, certainly stylistically and appearance-wise, to Batman. They, they look and feel the same. Um... And I would like to know a little bit more about Catman. I thought Chancer was a bit of, was the weak link of the group. Um, he just happens to be lucky, so he can jump off buildings and knows that people will stop him, save him. He won't die if somehow. I thought that was kind of weak. Um, I maybe ran out of ideas there. We're just going to have a lucky guy. Um, so I wasn't too keen on that. I thought it was a bit strange. Uh, the Nimrod storyline running through the story was a bit of a non-event. It was always there in the background, then you get the conclusion towards the end, and it's pretty weak. So um, that could have been taken out entirely. I thought it was a bit of a waste of time. But overall, pretty good story, good fun, light-hearted, uh, quite a good one-off story. One or two small flaws, but um, I, I enjoyed it overall. So I'll be giving it four out of five Batarangs. So next time, our focus is shifting uh, back to the Tim Drake Robin as uh, we return to a series that I started a few episodes ago. That was Robin, A Hero Reborn, as we saw Tim Drake take his first steps as the new Robin. Now we're, take, we're looking at the sequel to that called Robin, The Joker's Wild. And here we're going to see Tim face another big challenge in his early Robin career as he takes on Batman's greatest foe. How will Tim do? Find out next time. I've been Nick, and now I'll send you back to Dustin and the guys. See ya. Alright, so that was Bat Books for Beginners. Let's throw it over to Joe and find out what we got for Bat Book Delays for the past two weeks. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. So, Bat Book Delays. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago that News Armour had an interview with David Finch and they asked him, So just to clarify, issue 3 is solicited for June 22nd. It's definitely finished. And David Finch replied, Issue 3 is finished, so that should be a firm date. With emphasis on the should, because that issue now has been delayed from the 22nd of June to the 13th of July. So I don't know what's going on. Because... Uh, if it's finished, then why can't they just put it out? There's no way the storyline's going to get finished now. They, they might as well just stop it. They say, leave the story alone. It's not going to go anywhere. Like, well, you're not doing anything right. So just, you've got a few months now just to focus on the relaunch. But, I, I don't know. That's it. But irritating. All right, so 
with that, let's get into what we'll be covering next time on the podcast. As far as right now is what's listed, we'll be covering Batman Gates of Gotham number two. Unfortunately, we'll be returning to The Outsiders with the final issue of Outsiders, specifically because Batman comes to dismember the team. He would have done that way back after issue 20. Enough said with that. Also, we'll be covering Batman Incorporated number 7, Detective Comics number 878, as well as Gotham City Sirens number 24. So a little bit less books than this time, but for the most part, it seems as if it's starting to even out. But that obviously will change once again once we get back into July. Because there was five weeks of releases in June, it will somewhat balance itself out once we get to July. But Comic-Con's right around the corner, so don't expect short comic casts coming into the future because Comic-Con's always packed with news, especially with everything going on. With the DC Comics relaunch, that's all we can think about is that there's going to be tons of things happening at Comic-Con related to the DC Comics and the relaunch associated with that. So with that being said, if you haven't checked out the DC Relaunch special, make sure you head over to the website and look up the Batman Universe specials. You can download the episode right there on the site, or you can find it on iTunes. Please leave your comments, questions, or concerns either on the forums or right there on the site related to the post for the episode for that podcast, and we'll make sure to either bring them up in future episodes because this relaunch thing is not going away. Clearly, as we had so many interviews in this episode, this stuff's not going away. So with that, that's everything for this episode. You can head over to the website for all the daily news related to the comic books, as well as everything else related to Batman in general. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Twitter is becoming our main source of getting people news as fast as we possibly can, because news obviously happens throughout the day, but sometimes the news posts on the site don't get updated till the evening. So Twitter is always a nice way to find out exactly what's going on with the Batman universe. In addition to that, you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Those are always greatly appreciated. Of course, you can also check out on the website all of our other feeds that we've got going on. Our summer movie commentary has finally hit the internet after a year and a half of delays. It's finally available as the first episodes have posted. And a new episode will be posting every week during the summer. So that's everything for this episode. Join the forums. That's another great way to chat with us and other bad fans. And make sure to send us an email letting us know that you're registering on the form so we can make sure to get your account activated. So that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. You got Josh. This is Donovan. This is John. You've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Pip pip cheerio. Ta-ra. This is going to be a pretty long episode because there's uh, a decent chunk of news and we've got, I think, seven books to cover. So the ideal situation is let's keep our rants to a small amount. So You're going to say no rants and then the news is going to be like 
just a bunch of baits. Like in other news, say, I didn't say no rants. I said just keep them to a minimum. <laughs> Our first, Josh, Josh, you haven't been around for a while. Okay, <laughs> I can't say no rants. That would be like telling you that uh, you know putting you in solitary confinement. <laughs> I know. No, the, the joke is like you're going to say short rants, and then the first new story is uh, DC. Batman and the Joker met for the first time. Uh. <laughs> and then you keep on going on. 